Hi, I'm Al Alexandrov, and I'm one of the senior editors of the journal Global Symmetry. It's a pleasure to be back with you today, and it's my pleasure to introduce to you in a podcast uh, Susan Thornton. Um, this is episode 13, uh, and Susan and I will discuss uh, the open letter that was uh, published in the Washington Post entitled, China is not an enemy. Susan was one of the principals, the others including um, Taylor Fravel, uh, Jay Stapleton Roy, Michael Swain, Ezra Vogel, uh, all uh, China experts, um, uh, former China officials, um, who penned a, an open letter uh, to uh, discuss and indeed to push back against the current Washington perspective, which is the rising tensions and rivalries with China in U.S.-China relations. Um, Susan is um, currently uh, the visiting lecturer in law at Yale Law School and senior fellow at the Paul Tsai uh, China Center. She is a career diplomat uh, from uh, the U.S. State Department. So it's my absolute uh, pleasure uh, to um, uh, step into the virtual studio to discuss with Susan Thornton this particular letter, why it was created, what were the uh, objectives it sought to achieve, and how successful has it been. So it's my real pleasure today uh, to introduce Susan Thornton, who uh, is fortunate, we're fortunate enough to have her with us. She was one of the principals uh, with respect to the statement uh, that was created um, and, and published in the Washington Post on, uh, on July 3rd. So welcome, Susan. Great. Thanks, Alan. Good to be with you. Great. Uh, so uh, let's turn to that, uh, to that piece, uh, which was in the opinion section. Uh, I think its original title was Making China a U.S. Enemy is Counterproductive, although that seemed to have gotten shortened to China is Not an Enemy. I wasn't quite sure which was the actual official title. That statement that uh, uh, was uh, published there uh, was headed by five principals, yourself, uh, Taylor Fravel, uh, Stapleton Roy, Michael Swain, and Ezra Vogel. All of you uh, well-known scholars or experts uh, on China. Why did the five of you come together? Why did you feel such a sense of urgency uh, around the preparation of a statement like this? Yeah, well, it, it's, a, it's a great question. And I think basically ever since, uh, I think the beginning of the second year of the Trump administration, we started to see a radical change in the U.S. policy toward China, or I couldn't really even call it a policy. It's more like an attitude or an approach to China where things just started to really um, cascade into negative territory, starting, of course, with the trade war. But then there are all kinds of additional measures, sanctions, 
um, penalties, um, military maneuvers, and other things happening that uh, really seem to show a lack of appreciation for the responses that they would draw from China, from the uh, you know atmosphere that they would create in the region, and basically the overall counterproductive nature of the of the wholesale approach. And it seemed to us that a uh, this radical change in U.S. approach to you know the second largest economy, largest country in the world had not been clearly articulated, the goals of it were unclear, and it certainly had not been debated in public, um, B, that there was no consensus behind the correctness or the necessity for such a radical approach, and uh, C, we felt that the approach itself was going to be extremely damaging to U.S. medium and long-term interests, and that no one was focusing on that. And so we got uh, more and more anxious and as we all, you know, keep in touch regularly, share a lot of thoughts and um, news articles back and forth, we decided to undertake this effort to to say something publicly because nobody was really speaking up. People were kind of intimidated by the sort of anti-China, I think, hysteria that was thought to be or said to be by some conventional wisdom in Washington. And we thought it was necessary to to put something out that showed that there was not a firm consensus, that this was not a considered approach, and that we thought it was counterproductive. You know, it's interesting because there appears to have been, you know, I, I recently the piece that uh, former ambassador to the UN, Nikki Haley, uh, put out um, in uh, Foreign Affairs, I believe, she uh, wrote a statement and so forth, and a general presumption has been expressed uh, that, in fact, there is a, a consensus in Washington around uh, this more, you know, it's described within the umbrella of a new Cold War, etc., however you wanted to describe it. But you're suggesting that, in fact, there isn't a consensus in Washington. Well, I think there might be a consensus in Washington, or at least there's a lot of really loud, hysterical voices in Washington. But what I think is that it is not a consensus in America, and it's not a consensus among thinking people who want to have a reasonable, practical, and productive and effective approach to China, which we think this is not. Okay. So, so... It, while it might be there in the halls of Washington, your your presumption and your view is it does not carry uh, throughout the country nor among all the interests uh, that have uh, concerns about uh, the U.S.-China relationship. Exactly. And I, I have to say that I think that um, some of this, and in Nikki Haley's article in particular, seems to reflect a certain political expediency yeah. and a feeling among some political you know, actors in Washington that um, it's expedient to kind of pump up China as a enemy to sort of unify the U.S. And, and kick us into gear to come together and address some of the domestic problems that I think are really at the heart of this, you know, angst that we're seeing projected on China at the moment. Uh, okay. I mean, you know, it's interesting that uh, uh, most folks, who, or a number of folks who have commented on this growing so-called consensus, 
raise this notion of convergence and the failure of convergence. And it's you know, convergence being that somehow um, China would become, for lack of a better term, more like us, right? Or politically uh, more uh, liberal, et cetera, et cetera. What, what's interesting, of course, is that one of the really insightful folks on China in the United States, namely Ian Johnston at Harvard, uh, wrote a very uh, significant piece in which he made it quite clear that folks at the time, that is uh, decision makers and, uh, and experts, did not presume this notion of convergence. I don't know whether you have a view on that. Oh, I certainly do have a view on that, and I think it's just uh, folly that people are bringing this up now and saying that the the purpose of, you know, think back to 1972, Nixon's first trip to China, think back to the cooperation between the United States and China underneath under the Reagan administration, um, you know, working together to sell weapons to the Mujahideen in Afghanistan to try to counter the Soviet aggression there. Um, you think about all of the things that we've been doing with China, even after Tiananmen, which was a real nader in mm -hmm. uh, U.S.-China relations, obviously, when George H.W. Bush was president, you know, he worked very hard to try to get cooperation back on track because mm -hmm. it was clear at that point that China was going to be um, a significant factor in the global economy and present a lot of opportunities for, you know, the U.S. economy, U.S. businesses, et cetera. So, I think, you know, the idea that the only reason why we ever, you know, worked with China was because we were uh, trying to bring about the so-called peaceful evolution and change their regime and their system to look more like us uh, is not accurate or, or you know, even, even defensible. Mm -hmm. I mean, certainly people wanted to see economic reform and opening in China. And uh, the idea there was that China had to fit itself into the global uh, market economic trading and investment system in order to be a player, in order to make available all those opportunities. But um, as far as, you know, bringing about regime change in China, uh, you know, people, various people in the United States, of course, have, have desired that. And there's a lot of people that think about those kind of things in Congress. Um, a lot of people on the more ideological side of these questions, the human rights um, groups. But as far as policymakers in the White House and in the agencies in Washington, I would say that was not um, one of the high priorities for everything that we were doing with China. Okay, so engagement does not equal convergence. I mean, it really, those you know, there could be. Absolutely. I wish That's it. Correct. I wish it, but I'm not presuming it. Right, and, right. And there's lots of reasons to engage, even if you believe that you can never affect convergence. So I think that word engagement has created a lot of confusion for people, actually. Okay, fair enough. So let me go back a little bit to the, again, to your, the, the statement and the propositions you have. You have seven of them. Uh, was it difficult for the group, the five of you to come to agreement? And, uh, you know, was it, uh, uh, was it uh, a decision, collective decision to open it up to signatures, etc.? What was the kind of process here? Well, we um, we had a Michael Swain. I want to give him credit because he was really the ringleader and did a lot of the work on sort of putting out the initial okay. emails and collecting ideas. 
And even though five of us signed the letter as the so-called principals, we had about 25 of us that were actually working on the draft. So you can imagine <laughs> what that kind of drafting by committee was like. And uh, again, I have to credit Michael for you know sticking with it and going back and forth and taking people's you know edits and trying to work a, a draft that everybody felt happy with. But um, the biggest uh, discussion that we had in coming up with the text was should we make it short and pithy mm -hmm. so that it could be, you know, an opinion piece and be more accessible to a broader audience? Or should we make it longer and include, you know, every single possible objection that people could raise? And I was a big advocate for making it uh, short and pithy. Um, you know, the, one of the criticisms that we heard afterwards was that, well, they didn't mention this and they yeah. didn't mention that and yeah. they didn't mention the other thing. And, um, you know, there's no way that you can mention everything. And it also starts to sound, in my view, you know, too defensive. And we wanted this to be a, you know, flat out offensive statement of our view that we think this is counterproductive. And here are the basic reasons why. And if you want to get into it, then we can have a side conversation. Okay. But then I think we all agreed that we wanted to open it up to more outside uh, foreign policy experts because we didn't want it to be just a China experts mm -hmm. kind of view. We we wanted to make you know make it available to people who have a much broader you know traditionally a broader lens on more different foreign policy issues than just China. And we were able to get you know I think we were really pleased with at the number of you know especially. If, high-ranking former diplomats that signed on. I think we were very pleased to see that. Yeah, no, quite a number of folks, many of whom uh, I, I know and, and appreciate and have, you know, uh, really interesting insights into U.S.-China relations, for sure. Let me, let me take you to some of the uh, points that uh, the group made. Um, starting with uh, a comment in, Pro in Proposition 2, you say, Washington's adversarial stance towards Beijing weakens the influence of those voices in favor of assertive nationalism. I'm assuming that what you're talking about here is, you know, the, the various forces within uh, Chinese leadership and, and, and the Chinese government. And so I guess my question is, if there isn't a singular view of, of, uh, from China about uh, the United States, uh, can you give us some sense of what some of the differing presumptions are? We know the nationalist response, and we're we're seeing it now. But that that's I'm less interested in that than the the other alternatives there. Yeah, well, I think you know one of the common, very common misconceptions in policy corridors in Washington about China, and probably about a lot of other foreign countries, is that. You know, unlike the United States, where if you have five people in a room, you have 11 different opinions <laughs> on something, um, other countries are just a monolith and everybody thinks the same and they all have a national policy and everyone agrees with it and everyone just marches in lockstep, especially in a place like China where it's an authoritarian communist, you know, leadership. Mm -hmm. But that is, of course, not true. I mean, China's got 1.4 billion people. It's extremely diverse among that population. They have a lot of educated elites. They have, you know, um, millions and millions of party members, but they also have, 
you know, tens of millions of um, highly educated and influential non-party members in business circles, in academia, in all of their different agencies, etc. And all these people have different views on almost every question. And so, you know, the idea that, you know, there's, there's one view in China and everyone agrees with it and they're marching off to implement it is, is of course nonsense. China is no more a monolith than, 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 than the United States or Canada or anywhere else, even though they're not a democracy mm-hmm. and um, their politics just work differently, but they still have politics. And so, you know, the, of course, when the U S is sort of, um, unleashing this barrage of very aggressive rhetoric and, um, doing a lot of things that are very provocative to China and very public, um, that is going to basically disempower people who are advocating a positive approach to the U.S. and empower people, um, especially those in the military and other security organs that, you know, would like to take a tougher line. And a lot of their biases come out of the same kinds of places that uh, people's perspectives in U.S. or other governments come out of, which is the institutions where they work and their sort of incentive structures that are built into their professions and their jobs. So, of course, the you know foreign ministry would be weakened by these kinds of um, you know moves, and diplomacy would be given a back seat. And you know when you faced with a kind of a hostile uh, provocative kind of adversary. The the people who gain in stature are the ones who are sort of advocating hostile and adverse pushback. So mm-hmm. I think that's exactly what we're seeing. I mean, a lot of times in the U.S., we, you know, especially uh, the U.S. Congress comes up with all kinds of brilliant ideas for things to do to other countries, and they never seem to recognize that, of course, in response to those things that you do to other countries, those countries are gonna ha- are gonna do things. Um, and, and this is the dynamic that is just kind of fails to be recognized and that sort of the counterproductive downward spiral of it, uh, doesn't ever really get acknowledged. Mm -hmm. And also this sort of ineffectiveness of it doesn't ever really get acknowledged. So, I mean, it's a mystery to me as to why we keep going back and back and doing these kinds of pushing these kinds of solutions because they don't really ever produce solutions. Fair enough. Um, I'm, just as a sidebar, do you think, for instance, the difficult, uh, act, you know, kind of uh, politics now in Hong Kong make it even more difficult uh, for uh, those voices and for others to see the need for a more engaged relationship between uh, China and the United States? Is Hong Kong, in other words, poisoning the well? Yeah, well, it's definitely not helping, and it's probably hurting if it's doing anything. I think it's not the primary mm-hmm. factor at this point, and um, you know, certainly the Chinese seeing a U.S. black hand behind the protests is kind of um, the usual pattern that we see when things happen in Hong Kong. So it's not that new. I'm sure there are Chinese that are trying to play up that connection, um, you know, and, and to try to demonstrate that the USC, the US really does have very nefarious um, designs on on what they're doing. But, right. but I think in general, um, the problem, you know, there's, there are a lot of issues between the US and China, but 
one of the fundamental ch- issues on the Chinese side is the is the fragile uh, nature of stability in China and the extreme insecurity of the regime and the leadership. So, you know, most people think that Xi Jinping is this strong man. He came in, he consolidated power. He's got a very firm position. And, and I think that that's generally speaking true. I don't think Xi Jinping is really threatened in any way, but the, the system and the leadership and the legitimacy of the party, you know, is, is always fragile. And I think currently is perceived to be even more fragile by the Chinese leadership than, than mm-hmm. previously, in spite of Xi Jinping's, you know, um, elevated stature. So, so this is contributing a lot to a lot of the dysfunction that we see inside China, a lot of the backsliding on human rights and repression and control, um, inability to reform the economy and other problems. I mean, I don't think, and we made clear in the letter, I think, that none of us think that there are not problems in China's behavior and actions, that, 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 and these all need to be mm-hmm. you know, addressed with some kind of effective response. It's, that's not the issue, but the issue is how to do it. The issue, and there hasn't really been much conversation about you know, what is the effective way to do it or whether or not what we're doing is effective. And I think we certainly think it, what we're doing is not going to be effective. Not going to be effective. I, right. I guess one just follow on from that. Uh, you you mentioned the fragility in in quotation marks of the, of the leadership, and why is that? Is it because of lack of accountability? Uh, is this what drives the fragility, or is it historical? I mean, what 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 gives rise to China's presum the leadership's concern about its fragile position? Yeah, so I think that in general, um, you know, the Communist Party's ideology used to provide legitimacy for what it was doing, and it would mobilize the population behind the party and keep that support. I mean, the ideological attraction is long gone, of course. Um, It was probably gone before the collapse of the Soviet Union, but it was certainly gone after the collapse. So the legitimacy of the Chinese Communist Party has now been coming from their ability to you know, deliver Deliver. on um, a better life for people. And, and, and the, you know, Xi Jinping's slogan is the rejuvenation of China, Um, you know, making China strong again, kind of thing, you know, make China great again, (laughs) if you will. (laughs) So this is the China dream context that we hear periodically. Right. But that's still difficult to mobilize people behind, I think. And, you know, the system is extremely rigid. It has a lot of dysfunctionality that comes from the lack of kind of oversight and accountability. They've tried to make up with that for that with a anti-corruption campaign, which, right. you know, works to some extent and is very popular in China, but still isn't going to make up for the inbuilt kind of um, rent seeking and other opportunities that are there in this kind of a system. So I think it's just you know, they are constantly studying the lessons of the collapse of the Soviet Union, and it really worries them. And they're trying to be flexible and do experimentation, and they're always tinkering with their system. And that's one of their strengths, actually, that makes them different from the Soviets, I think. But uh, they're still pretty worried about their holding on to power, and they're kind of paranoid. So... (laughs) (laughs) So I, I, I had just been reading uh, Kevin Rudd, the former um, uh, Prime Minister of Australia, and his kind of assessment 
of the U.S.-China relationship. And he, 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 you know, what I didn't quite understand, maybe it's my poor reading of his, his piece, uh, this was in um, PS, um, uh, Project Syndicate, was that it was hard for me to assess his own view as to whether or not market reform, in fact, was continuing or whether, you know, um, notwithstanding all the earlier um, um, arguments for market reform and, and that the, from the plenum, and et cetera, et cetera, that, in fact, it's being put aside. What's your view well, on that? Yeah, this is the big question that I think everybody needs to be continuing to put to the Chinese leadership because I, I think it's not clear. Mm-hmm. And I think there is a real struggle in China over this very issue. They had a very clear blueprint for economic market reform and even said that the market would be the decisive factor in the Chinese economy. This was back in 20, I think it was 2013. Yes, um, yeah. But, you know, that failed to move forward. And most people in China will tell you, oh, well, yeah, that's because we have these major interest groups that, you know, are now dug in and influential and are stopping and blocking the reform, something familiar to pretty much every (laughs) government, you know, around the world at this point, Mm -hmm. uh, certainly here. But, uh, you know, so they are grappling with that and trying to overcome it. But the big question is really, even if they were able to overcome those vested interests and move in the direction they want to move, how far is it that they want to move? Or are they really going to turn in a more kind of statist and autarkic direction and keep the China market for Chinese companies, et cetera, which I believe is probably the predilection of people like Xi Jinping, who are more attached to levers of control probably than he is to faith in the, you know, invisible hand of Adam Smith. So mm-hmm. I think it is a real question. And I, I, I believe that Kevin Rudd is probably as much befuddled by the answer to the question as the rest of us. Um, and it's, the, and it is the real question to ask because if China can't, if China isn't going to really, uh, keep faith with its WTO accession commitments and move toward a real market economy um, where we could all agree that the moniker market economy should be given to China in the WTO. If they're going to keep all of these other reserve, all these statist interventions Mm -hmm. and SOE privileges and developing uh, country uh, tariff levels, et cetera, then we're not going to be able to fit the Chinese economy into the international you know, trading system in a way that's going to make it possible for it to, I think, survive in its current form. So that is the big, to me, that's the big question. Okay. Um, well, it's clear from the statement that this, uh, that you and, and obviously others, you know, take this effort, this call it what you will, uh, attitude or renewal of the Cold War, this full court press against uh, China is not a very effective uh, strategy uh, or, or even tactic, I guess. The, but the question I have is, look, for some time now, there were uh, complaints from uh, the U.S. business community and, community and European business community and government um, over the, the questions of the technology transfer 
the theft of intellectual um, property, the subsidies question, and yet what's reasonably apparent is very little was uh, collectively done to try and deal with that. I mean, why is that? Oh, there's probably a lot of things that could be said here, but, um, you know, first of all, I think it is true that the collective developed West uh, should have gotten together at an earlier date, prioritized the things that it was, uh, you know, the things that China was doing that were unacceptable and, uh, you know, held them accountable in you know, a diplomatic negotiation mm -hmm. and get them to change these practices. And I think that that could well have been done. I mean, one of the problems is that, uh, you know, of course, the developed countries are all competing against one another, too, um, right. for market access in China, etc. So it makes it difficult to come together. But we could have done that and should have done that. Um, you know, I think the U.S. was a little bit distracted through the 2000s, right after China came into the WTO. So we didn't use the uh, remedies that we could have used early on against some of these uh, problematic Chinese practices. Mm -hmm. um, and then they got a little bit out of hand. So we could have you know, nipped it in the bud or tried to do more earlier. We should have done that. I think TPP would have been a great... Um, antidote to some of what ails us because it would have created an integrated Asian market at a higher standard than what China's meeting now and that would have pushed them to, you know, move in a direction that we would have all liked to have seen. And I think a lot of things we could have done with China just through regular um, trade negotiations if we would have been able to get them uh, brought to a conclusion. For example, the U.S. was negotiating a bilateral investment treaty right. with China right. throughout the Obama administration, we had made great progress. We were getting very close to being finished, and there was a lot of market access provisions in there. In fact, a lot of those are being rolled out now by the Chinese, you know, eight years later, basically, um, in the financial sector and other places. So these are things we've been working on for a long time. I mean, the trade negotiations do take a long time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think that a lot could have been accomplished. Uh, with more effective diplomacy in the wake of China's WTO accession by a collective group of countries that would have been interested in seeing their accession go better. Right, um, right. And we probably could have pushed harder on some of these reform measures and pushed the Chinese to go a little bit farther and faster. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I don't think it would have solved all of the problems that we're seeing now, and certainly... You know, the advent of technology and technological change and the speed of it has made all of this more complicated. And the introduction of cyber and the ability of China to do cyber um, IPR theft, um, you know, is, is, is a new wrinkle. And it's more difficult to deal with in the old kinds of IPR theft, which we had actually made a lot of progress on in the 90s. So, mm -hmm. but I think there, you know, a lot of things could have been done and they would have been effective and it would have you know, enabled us to continue holding together the international trading system, which I'm really quite concerned is falling apart around our ears. <laughs> um, you know, it's interesting that uh, I, I was peripherally involved in uh, China's WTO accession. Um, and obviously many people were involved in it. And, and there's discussion about whether or not there was, you know, kind of 
uh, and you raise it, too much kind of uh, willingness to allow China uh, to, uh, in effect, get away with things early on. But I mean, there's an interesting um, podcast by Charlene Barshevsky, who of course was ne- negotiated uh, the um, uh, WTO accession. This is a podcast, uh, Dollars and Cents, uh, David Dollar. And I mean, she, it's interesting. She's quite critical of the SNED process as really just kind of, you know, obtuse to uh, really dealing with uh, uh, the serious problems and that there was an unwillingness on the part for a variety of reasons to really use the WTO because it had uh, provisions there that would have allowed uh, stronger efforts uh, against uh, China. I mean, it, it seems as if, you know, the ball was dropped. Uh, that and now it's very hard to pick the ball back up again. Right. I think. I mean. I. I completely. I. I love Charlene's uh, comments in this regard, and she talks about. You know, we should have gone to the WTO and right. pursued a nullification and impairment, impairment. case. Yes. No. Um, exactly. Which you know, I think we should have done at some point if it got this uh, bad. But she's. She's right that we should have done more in the way of enforcement earlier on. Mm-hmm. And I think there are two reasons that we didn't, frankly. One was because the U.S. business community seemed to be quite happy with the state of things and was nervous about us taking remedial actions. And second, you know, of course, the U.S. after 9-11-2001 was preoccupied sure. with building a global coalition to counter terrorism around the world and, you know, was wanted to keep everybody on side and sort of probably took its eye off the ball as well. So, you know, they're looking back on it. You can see how it happened. And you now looking back, you can see the result of that. Um, but it's not that the solution now has to be so drastic as to dismantle the global trading system. I mean, that's going to be extremely damaging for the U S and everyone else. Fair enough. I mean, and, and so, you know, there are a number, you, the view of that kind of pushback against kind of this aggressive attitude, uh, the you know radical policy of the U.S. is apparent within the statement, um, uh, and uh, you know also it, it operates at the at the um, po- political security level as where the the geopolitical level uh, in the in the statement about you know backing away from this kind of offensive and open-ended arms race. Uh, but a lot of those initiatives um, uh, that, that are talked about in the statement, you know, to peel back or restrain uh, some of this aggressiveness really, and it's stated in the statement, relate to allied uh, support. And, you know, it seems to me if that's true, how do we get there at all in the current circumstances, given the Trump attitude towards allies, particularly Japan, Korea, uh, and others? How do we do this? Well, I would say that one of the real questions that makes it hard to come up with a coherent China policy in the United States, and you see people having great difficulty with this, I would call your attention to the recent article by Kurt Campbell and um, Jake Sullivan. Jake Sullivan in Foreign Affairs, yes. Right. I mean, 
you know, it, on the face of it maybe looks good, but it's pretty confusing once you start getting into the details. And I think the reason for that is because there's a real question now in the United States about, I mean, there's this questioning of the U.S. role in the world and this kind of pathos or insecurity about about what we're doing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people like me and the people who signed the letter, I think we all believe that the United States should continue to be the global leader, that that's what the... American people want that that's what the rest of the world wants and that there's no one else that's going to do it and that we still have a comparative advantage in global leadership and that that is our rightful kind of approach in place and that China's not going to replace that in the near or medium term at least. Um, but you know that seems to be under fire from other quarters and that fire seems to be confusing. Um, kind of our approach to our traditional partners and allies, which is which is one of our, frankly, big comparative advantages and one of the few big comparative advantages we have to China. Right. The other one, of course, is our, our incredibly expansive and deep, uh, innovative ecosystem based in our universities and our, and our other technological uh, uh, bases. And that's mm-hmm. another area that's being undermined by this policy, frankly. And so... You know, if we're undermining our two big comparative advantages and we're confused about what the U.S. role should be in the world, no wonder we're having a hard time coming up with a coherent approach to China. Okay. I mean, so, but I mean, layout, you know, kind of as the big end here, what would you see as a a way forward, you know, given uh, the need for allied support and Given the need for a clear uh, goal and not just an attitude, how do you how do you see the? I mean, leaving the Trump administration aside, at some point, Trump administration right. is going to go away, uh, whatever right. that is. Uh, and assuming we uh, that the United States can still then pick up the pieces, uh, what's the way forward from your perspective? Well, the first thing is not to focus excessive negative energy on China, but to focus. Uh, you know, very exuberant positive energy on putting back together all of the comparative advantages that the U.S. has. We've got to put back together our uh, coalition of partners and allies, have a positive vision of what we're trying to do with security and with, the, um, you know, economic integration in the world and open markets and prosperity. We've got to um, I think, you know, regarding the Western Pacific focus, as we say in the statement on deterrence, not on uh, primacy or domination, not on an arms race, uh, we've got to continue to act as a leader in the opening up of markets and trade relationships. I would, I would get us back into TPP or CPTPP and try to bridge that with a TTIP, you know, agreement yeah. with Europe and yeah. bring it together with the whatever the agreement is that we're calling between the U.S., Canada, and Mexico at that point, um, and and create a higher standards competitor to the WTO that would help bring up a lot of those countries, hopefully. And, you know, maybe China would um, would see that as a stimulus for the kind of reform and market opening that I think we would all welcome. Uh, so, so we've really got to get back to doubling down on our strengths and um, – and I think, you know, we don't need to be so concerned about bringing China down, containing China, you know, putting butter on the stairs so that when the Chinese come down it, they slip and fall. That's not, <laughs> uh, 
you know, it's kind of beneath our national character, actually. We see ourselves as able to compete and win, and we should just focus on doing that and not focus on bringing down other people that may be competing. Okay, and I take it from your perspective, you you don't anticipate or don't believe that, uh, you know, that... Uh, uh, Beijing is trying to replace the United States as the as the global leader. You see, it, that is exaggerated because you write, write about that in the statement. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. I mean, I think every country in the world wants to be a great country, and sure. I don't think there's any surprise about that. And that's pretty much, you know, the Chinese national strategy is make China great again, just like apparently ours <laughs> is make America great again. But that's not anything that's threatening and shouldn't be seen as threatening. Okay. Well, Sue, I really want to thank you for taking your time out to, to review kind of where, where the U.S.-China relationship is, particularly in the context of the statement uh, you and your colleagues uh, uh, published in the Washington Post. I really do thank you for that. Thank you, Alan. It's been great talking with you today. Oh, great. You've been listening to the Global Symmetry Podcast with Alan Alexandrov. This episode was edited by Kyle Fulton, and the music you heard was composed and performed by Rory Lavelle. You can find more of his music at rorylavelle.bandcamp.com.